Aurora, the Roman goddess of dawn, and the name given to one of the most beautiful and ethereal sights in our skies. The northern and southern lights can often be seen dancing the night sky of polar regions to the north and south of our planet. But recently, they have been visible in much lower latitudes, including here in Ireland. What causes this phenomenon and why is its activity increasing? Hello and welcome to the Met Heron Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. This episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Sophie Murray, space weather researcher and technical officer with the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. Dr. Murray and I explore the aurora, solar winds, the role of the sun in space weather, and the potential for more aurora sightings in the near future. So Sophie, thank you so much for coming in. We've been really looking forward to doing this episode. Really interesting. Listeners of this podcast will be very used to hearing us talk about weather. But uh, today we're talking about space weather. So just very broadly, what is space weather? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the words alone are a nice description of it. Basically, thinking about weather and weather being really changing conditions in our atmosphere. Instead, we're thinking about changing conditions in near Earth space, in space. And then you're the weather expert now, so do correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think of weather, I think about, you know, 10 kilometers upwards in the troposphere, lots of changing winds and temperatures and things like that. And we're talking about 100 kilometers upwards, really, really, really high up in our Earth's atmosphere at the edge of space and in the space that's, you know, where we have our satellites in orbit. Things can happen up there. Conditions can change. And that's what we call space weather. And it's co- it's basically being caused by space rather than something on Earth, like we would say terrestrial weather. So I would call weather terrestrial weather rather than space weather. Okay, right. No, no your, your description of weather was, was, was perfect. And then where is that weather coming from? What's generating space weather? Yeah, I mean, it, as I was saying, it's kind of basically from space. Um, so we do have things like cosmic rays, which are like kind of high energy radiation coming from outside the solar system. Um, but really the main source of space weather is our sun. Um, so, you know, it gives us our light or heat, um, but it's a very active star and, and there's lots of changes happening on it constantly. And so those changes of activity on our sun are impacting us here on Earth and throughout the solar system. OK, so the sun is the is the source. Is of, the big thing. Okay. Yeah. And the sun is obviously a good distance away. We know that it's light and it's heat, it's radiation reaches us. How is what the sun is outputting uh, for space weather different? What, what is it that's, that's transmitting that space weather from the sun to us? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of different types. Okay. Um, I think of it as everyday space weather and extreme <laughs> space weather, right? Great. So you've yeah, got yeah. Well, everyday like sun kinds, stuff yeah. and extreme sun stuff. <laughs> um, so the sun is constantly changing its conditions. You know, there's something always happening on it, it's bubbling away. Um, but there's something called the solar wind. And that's what I think of as everyday space weather. Okay. So like, you know, your rainy, sunny, cloudy day on Earth, pretty normal, particularly in Ireland, your rainy day is pretty normal. Um, but the, So the stream of the solar wind is basically, just think of it as particles, um, particles emanating out from the sun. So the sun is rotating and think of it like a sprinkler. These particles are flying out from the sun in this spiral-like fashion into the solar system. So as it rotates and it flies out like a sprinkler, it's going to hit us at Earth. And so those particles hitting us on Earth are causing sort of everyday changes. Um, But then there's something on the sun called sunspots. Mm -hmm. um, And that's where the more extreme stuff comes from. So these are regions of really, really, really strong magnetic fields. And as the sun rotates, these sunspots can change in shape and size and structure and grow and basically get more complex and store huge amounts of energy. 
um, what we call magnetic energy. Okay. Um, and so they change, their magnetic field lines get all twisted, lots and lots of energy gets built up, and it basically becomes really, really unstable. Mm. Um, in physics, if something's unstable, it wants to reach a more stable state. So to do that, it releases energy. And it's that energy release that is a solar eruption. And there's different types of solar eruptions, but that's what's causing the extreme space weather. Okay, so, so those eruptions... Are they, you know, we sometimes hear about things like solar flares. Is yeah. that an example of, of an eruption? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, you know, I think uh, the, the, the energy release that I just talked about is the classic example of a solar flare. So it's huge amounts of energy. And it's what we call uh, energy across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Now, some people might have learned that in school. They might remember their X-rays and their gamma rays and their radio waves. It's all of those rays. So everything is being um, basically emitted from the sun in this form of a solar flare. And we're talking about huge amounts of energy. So this is like the entire, you know, power consumption of the planet Earth in a year in just minutes wow. being emitted. Um, and so that's going to go out all in all directions. And so the flare can reach Earth really, really quickly. And so that's the solar flare. And you, I often see um, people talking about flares in the media, but they also mention coronal mass ejections. Yes. That might be something you've heard of before For sure. as well. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, the change, get, the, the terms get a little bit intermixed, but they are quite distinct. So whereas the flare is the energy, the coronal mass ejection is the stuff. So sometimes with this energy release, you also get particles. So like the solar wind, is basically like a plasma flow. So you know like neon lights or lightning yes. strikes on Earth, that yeah. electrified gas. Mm -hmm. This stuff can also be ejected from the sun in these eruptions. And that's the, the CME, the coronal mass ejection. And these things will cause then different impacts on Earth. Um, and, uh, you know... The everyday space weather, the solar wind is, you know, it's slower than the CME. There's less stuff of it. So the CME is more dense, it's faster, and it'll impact us more heavily on Earth when it arrives. Wow. Okay. So is in, in terms of like, if the solar flare is the eruption, is the CME kind of like the dust and gas that can come out from an eruption yeah, or something stuff. like that? The you stuff. Know, okay. anyway, it's matter, but it's yeah. an easy way to call it okay. stuff from the sun. Okay. <laughs> and of course, you mentioned the sun is rotating. So I guess... It depends. The impact on Earth is going to depend on if the sun is facing the Earth when totally. those eruptions take it's place. Direction, you know, it, we yeah. call it the, the directionality associated okay. with the CME. With the flare, it'll emit in all directions. So light, you know, X-rays, gamma rays, they'll go everywhere. But with the CME, it has to be pointed to the right part and it's, you know, what we call a Parker spiral. So that sprinkler system is, is, is uh, named after a scientist who discovered it. It's called a Parker spiral. So it has to be basically on the spiral on the way to us um, in order to, to hit us at Earth or, of course, other planets as well. So you do have planetary space weather. We, we always think about Earth, but there's lots of different things in the solar system yeah, that these course, things get of in. <laughs> the sprinkler is a really good analogy, actually. I've seen some of the imagery of these uh, of these uh, eruptions and it really does have that, that spray look to yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. The, you mentioned sunspots and... Um, do we have a, a cycle in how active it is? You know, do we get more sunspots at certain times than others? Yeah, there's a there's a there's basically a cycle of solar activity, um, and 
we basically, it's about 11 years, you know, give or take, these things are not perfect. Um, but we have, um, if anybody likes maths, um, I basically think of it as a sine wave. So it's, you know, that classic up and down, there's peaks and troughs and there's periods of the sun where it's, it's quiet and there's not many sunspots, so there's not as many eruptions. And there's a ramp up of activity. And then there's the peaks where it's really active and then a ramp down again. And that'll happen every 11 years or so. It's all to do with the magnetic fields so and we won't get into the physics of it. Um, but for, for, you know, for us every day, it's a good way of telling us how active the sun will be. Now, I say that, but in life, there's always exceptions to this sure. rule. So, yes. you know, yeah. Even though, of course, at a, a solar max, we would expect more more sunspots, basically. So, so more flares and more CMEs. Um, but they can happen anytime. You can get really big sunspots that are give us flares anytime in the solar cycle. And there's actually a really famous event that happened at solar minimum that gave off the biggest flare we've ever seen. So these flares can happen anytime, which means... You know, you just have to constantly monitor the sun for activity to, to know what has, what's going to happen here on Earth and what sort of impacts they have. How, how long do sunspots sort of live on the surface for? Are they, they long-lived? Are they? Yeah, yeah, they can. The big ones can go what we call a couple of rotations. So, you know, there's a 27-ish day rotation rate of the sun. So they can come around a few times. Okay. And you'll see them, they big and then they might be bigger and then might decay. Um, so they can live a few a few rotations, and sometimes they'll just see a spot coming on. And um, obviously, we can only see the side that's facing us. So, in an ideal world, we'd have a suite of satellites around the sun to see what's happening at all times. So we we can kind of see them coming back around and changing and and evolving. Um, but yeah, any they can last from days to weeks to months. They can last quite a long time. And some of the really big ones have lasted for a few rotations. So, you know, forecasters will keep an eye on them for when they come back and see are they going to cause us trouble again. <laughs> you mentioned there, you know. It'd be great to be able to observe the sun from all angles. and But obviously, to get all that information that, that you have and to, to sort of build that understanding, we have to observe the sun quite closely. So we must have different methods. Are we observing the sun from space? Yeah. There's a, you know, I think that's really from a space weather forecasting and from a science point of view, a lot of our, our big instruments really are in space. So, you know, as a solar physicist, um, you know, looking at the sun, there's a lot of NASA and ESA spacecraft. You know, for example, at, at Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, we're involved with the ESA Solar Orbiter, which is a really new spacecraft that we actually just got to see the launch of it a couple of years ago in, in, uh, in Florida. And it's been staring at the sun um, ever since. And so that's, you know, a spacecraft like that is key for us to be able to look at the sun in fine detail and see what's happening from a science point of view. So there's a lots of really interesting science missions out there to help us understand the sun. But then there's also operational missions. So just like in, in weather forecasting, you have operational weather satellites. For sure. Um, so yeah. we have some, like the, Ga the GOES spacecraft um, has uh, an instrument on board that looks at the X-rays. So that tells us, you know, I was saying flare or x-rays earlier so that tells us when a flare is happening um, and, and other instruments that'll look at uh, extreme ultraviolet light mm. um, which shows us what the solar atmosphere is doing and that's how we can see really interesting active regions on the sun when I say active regions I basically mean sunspots okay. um, and see what's happening so we're constantly monitoring them from those kinds of operational satellites and that's really the sun part now we do have stuff on the ground as well okay. um, you know there are the kind of the white light telescopes the classic telescopes but of course, with the atmosphere, you know, really, you know, the operational ones are in space. But there's also different types of things on the ground. Um, 
So, you know, radio telescopes, for example, are also used a lot um, for space weather. We have the Irish Low Frequency Array in Burcastle in County Offaly um, that is looking at, you know, the sun and other objects in our universe, um, you know, through radio. Okay. Um, so which when is, you, you know, so interesting. Yeah. So what is that concept things. in terms of, as you say, we've got like the white light telescopes, the ones that you might have in your back garden yeah. or something. What is a radio telescope? How, what's that looking at? And you, you know, definitely one to Google yeah, for yeah, sure. I'm sure. You know, if you have this classic image of a telescope, yes. it's it's not what you think. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a lot of plastic sticking out of the ground. Um, but, you know, this is a really fascinating concept. So we're kind of on the edge of Europe. We have lots of these different um, arrays across the the. Uh, basically the European continent and here they're all connected together that create one big massive telescope to, to listen out for radio signals in space. So okay. it's a fascinating concept and very, very different. And so you've got, you know, telescopes like that, which you wouldn't really think of um, that are used for, for, for space weather. And, and then there's the, the sort of the Earth impact stuff as well. So, you know, rather than just telescopes, we also want to know how is it impacting our planet? So mm -hmm. there's spacecraft in orbit that will measure the the speed of the solar wind or the the density or the field strength. To, you know, it's like a weather satellite or a buoy in the ocean or, you know, a weather station in your back garden. It wants to know the current conditions. Um, and then we also have our our, um, our geophysicists and, and astrophysicists, of course. You know, a lot of us in Dias, you know, they'll, they'll be going off and digging a hole in a field around Ireland and placing uh, what are called magnetometers, magnetometers in the ground yes. yeah. to measure Earth's magnetic magnetic field changes. Um, and so those kinds of ground-based things also tell us about the impacts of space weather on Earth. So you've got, you're going from space all the way down to the ground. There's a huge array of different things that we'll use for monitoring purposes. I think we have a magnetometer at our Valencia Observatory. Yes. And um, so we have uh, space weather on that as well. Um, so I think uh, we work a lot closely with the, the Medarin guys in the Valencia. So they have their Earth stuff as well as the space weather stuff there, which is really cool. We, if we're looking at, say, something like wind or the severity of a storm, we have different units or metrics that we use to measure them. Are there similar things for space weather, say space wind? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is funny because I always, it's, especially solar wind, I kind of laugh at myself really because I think, oh, it's really slow. But in the grand scheme of things, it's insanely fast from what we think of on Earth. Um, we generally use, we try as much as we can to use SI units. So it's something like um, the solar wind is kilometers per second, okay, um, which is kind of the, the main unit we use. But we say it's hundreds of kilometers per second. And that's really slow to me. But, you know, that's really basically a million and a half kilometers per hour. But you know, the, the concept of, of, of the solar wind being slow is because of CME, which I was saying is a more extreme space weather, yes. is an order of magnitude faster than that. So wow. you're talking about, you know, it can go up to a thousand kilometers per second. Um, so really, really fast things. And, you know, a flare is, 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 is electromagnetic radiations, which traveling at the speed of light. So these things, you know, will take... It's like eight minutes from from light going to the sun to the earth, so they're they're arriving almost instantaneously. So they're they're really fast in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> Is there something in terms of like, for example, when we talk about storms, we sometimes use, um, or well, at least we used to use, and, and and still do the the Beaufort scale. You know, we're sort yeah. of giving an index, you know, of like one to twelve in terms of how severe. Do you have something similar for activity? There is. There's the for, there's a few different things. So I mean, for we actually have them scales for different types of solar eruptions. Okay. Um, but so basically, for eruptions, you have scales that will 
give an indicator to the kind of people who would be impacted by space weather at the severity of an event. Um, so this would be for flares, um, for for CMEs, and also something I haven't mentioned is there's solar energetic particles. So some of these events will also accelerate protons, electrons to really fast speeds. And so you'll have scales for the solar source side of things, but then also scales for the Earth impacts. So a good example of that is the K-index. Okay. Um, so this is basically what the magnetometers are measuring. So a simple scale from one to 10, one being really, really quiet and 10 being, you know, a big uh, storm hitting Earth. And so, you know, when you see it going into the higher numbers above five, you think, okay, there's something interesting happening there. It's a nice, simple scale for people to understand what's happening. So, yeah, lots of different scales. And because there's different types of space weather, um, different people will be interested in different scales. Of course. You know, so they'll keep an eye on the different things happening on the sun and decide, okay, that that we need to worry about or that we don't need to worry about. So we've got these solar winds and, and material that's flowing towards Earth. But before it hits Earth, it interacts with something called the Earth's uh, magnetosphere. What is that? Yeah, and this is not a question for me because I'm not a magnetospheric physicist. Okay. But I can tell you it's probably something to do with Earth's core and <laughs> <laughs> the molten iron in the Earth's okay. core. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I think there's convective motions in there that are moving around and uh, generating Earth's magnetic field. And so, you know, Earth's field and its atmosphere are protecting us. And the magnetosphere is up, um, surrounding us, protecting our planet. Um, so if, if, you, if you have a look at some pictures online, you'll basically see um, Earth's magnetic field shield shielding us from this stuff. So the solar wind will hit us and it'll deflect it okay. and go around the Earth. Um, and it's, you know, I think me trying to explain the magnetosphere is a classic example of what happens when you become a scientist and you get so specialized that I could tell you anything about a flare, but I can't tell you that much about the magnetosphere. But we have um, at Dias, we have a whole team of magnetospheric physicists who study the magnetosphere and try to understand, you know, how the space weather is impacting us on Earth and other planets as well. Um, but yeah, it's a really important kind of part of us being protected on Earth from this stuff. Okay, so it's sort of like a almost a shield that yeah. the Earth has. Um, do do other planets have that as well? Yes, yes. Um, there are magnetospheres on God now, probably Jupiter, some of the Jovian planets. I know Mars is an interesting one because it doesn't have a magnetic fields, and it's a really nice example of what would happen, say, on Earth if we didn't have the atmosphere and the magnetic field protecting us, um, because it's been bombarded by the solar wind for millions and millions of years, and its atmosphere is really thin because of that. Um, so yeah, if we ever want to inhabit Mars, we should probably think about that. Okay, Well, you know, if you ever core, look up yeah. these things, they have to have little pods or shielded areas um, to make sure that they're protected from this stuff. So this is why we're really lucky um, on Earth and it's nice and habitable. So we have the solar winds interacting with the Earth's magnetic field. And the thing that we think of the most when we think of space weather is the aurora. Yeah. So where, where is the aurora taking place, so to speak? Yeah, so the, you know, I was saying sort of earlier, weather is happening low down. Space weather is far up. So, you know, anything from 100 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers upwards, there's some really interesting things happening up there. There's um, different layers of the atmosphere, the ionosphere, the thermosphere, the magnetosphere. And the thermosphere is what we call the neutral part. So it's kind of where, where spacecraft are in orbit. But the ionosphere is basically the charged part. So when, you know, these uh, these uh, these particles kind of come in and get a, 
get charged. There's lots of interesting things happening in terms of our physics and chemistry there. And that's where all this interesting stuff is happening with the aurora. So, you know, I mentioned that particles can come through the polar regions um, where our magnetic field lines are. It's like a bar magnet in school. You know, you have your north and your south yes, pole. And yeah. And you put down the iron bits of iron. Yeah, yeah. yeah kind of get curved. So that's where our particles are streaming along the field lines hitting our ionosphere region, this area up high up in, in our atmosphere, and then interacting with things in our atmosphere. So we've got oxygen up there, we've got nitrogen up there, um, and those particles will interact with these chemical constituents and cause that beautiful glowing colour that we know that's happened in the northern now in the northern latitudes. Now, I can never remember the colours, but, you know, someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the oxygen higher up gives you a nice red. It's a little bit lower down, it gives a green. I think the nitrogen is that kind of beautiful bluey colour. And so that's what's causing it, these interactions in our atmosphere. In terms of if someone wants to see the aurora, where are the best places Mm. to see it? I mean, I was mentioning earlier that this comes down at the poles, right? So northern latitudes are good. And that's why you often see lots of aurora tours in Iceland and Alaska and Canada and, you know, Scandinavia and places like that. So that's a good start to go to the northern latitudes. So your everyday space weather, you know, the solar wind does not a huge impact on Earth. Um, so we won't come too far south. But generally, there's some really good times of the year to see the aurora with just everyday space weather conditions. So, you know, if you pick the right time and good weather, um, you're going to be able to spot them up there. Um, but you can stay here too. You can stay in Dublin and just wait for some really nice big storms to hit. Um, so when a CME hits the Earth, like a, a, a big one that's that's quite a, a large magnitude on our scale, um, then um, it is going to come further south. So this brings the aurora to sort you know more southern latitudes. Um, so this is when you get a chance to see it in Ireland. Often Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, in kind of like medium events, will often get this kind of thing during periods of, of sort of big solar activity. Um, but then when we get the big storms happening, and there was actually there was one quite recently, um, there was an aurora uh, sightings across Ireland. I think they saw it as far as south as Cork. Of course, I was in Kildare and it was very cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> so we had absolutely no luck. And that's really the, the, the problem with the aurora spotting. Not only do you need a nice big storm, uh, but you need clear skies in Ireland to see it. <laughs> I was very fortunate to see it in, oh, uh, in Sligo. Um, Brilliant, where I live yeah. in Sligo is, 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 you know, in the countryside. So I was able to just go down the road from my house where it's dark and it was much stronger than I thought oh, it was going stunning. to be. You know, I, I, I was fortunate to see it once before or a few times before in, in the Arctic. And I was expecting oh, wow, it to see it in yeah. Ireland, that it would be just some kind of green mist but in you the got distance. The colours. But it was, yeah, it was really, yeah. really beautiful. I've only seen it once in Ireland. Mm. Um, it's actually really, so there's, there's some quite... In the, in the science field, there's quite famous space weather events. So big storms that have hit us. And there's one called the Halloween storms in 2003. And I was a, a student at the time in Trinity, actually. And I remember, uh, it was before I really had studied space weather. And I remember a big furore about the skies and looking up uh, one of those nights and seeing the aurora above Dublin. It was stunning. And uh, yeah, a few months later, I remember we were doing actually lectures about it and then realizing, oh, that's what that meant. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was one of the one of the key moments back in the day. 2003 was one of the big storms. There seem to have been a, a couple of, of high activity events in the last couple of months. So is, is there a reason that we're seeing sort of an increase in these? Yeah, it, it's 
the solar cycle. Okay. So, you know, it's that ramp up, it's that sine wave, it's it's the ramp up time. So the last solar minimum was 2019. So if you think of an 11 year cycle, you're really every five or six years, you're going from that minimum up to that peak. So now it's becoming really, really active. So, you know, if you're keeping an eye on on solar monitoring like we do, there's lots of sunspots in the sun at the moment. Um, So we are going to get more activity now in the coming years. This is a great time to start getting into aurora spotting for sure, um, because we definitely will have in the coming years some more activity. If you're someone who would like to maximize their chance of seeing the aurora, are there resources open to the public where you can check to see how active it's going to be or or what the forecast is? Yeah, there's, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how technical you want to get. There's loads of really cool resources out there. Um, there's some really great, actually, citizen science programs, um, like Aurorasaurus and some of the other ones. Aurorasaurus. Um, yeah. Great. And um, there's uh, some really cool kind of Aurora spottings. You can kind of uh, put your your your, um, your sightings online and see where everyone else has spotted it. Um, so there's some really nice um, resources out there. Um, and then if you want to learn a little bit more about space weather, you can have a look at some of the more scientific sites. Like us, we have uh, Maggie. So M-A-G-I-E dot I-E, which is the Magnetometer Network of Ireland. And that's where you'll find your K-index scales for Ireland. So you'll have a look and see, you know, how high the K-index is. And if you can see it at a high level, then you might, you know, expect um, some activity. And we have... uh, we have sites in Valencia and Burr and Armagh um, and Dunsink as well. And so that will give you a sense of what it's like across the country. And if you want to get into a bit of the solar monitoring and catch it before you know it even erupts, um, you can look at some of the sites we have, for example, solarmonitor.org. So that'll show you some examples of what the sun looks like right now. Um, you can see the sunspots. You can look at it in extreme ultraviolet light and look at the atmosphere and see how active it is. But you probably have to learn a little bit about the sun. <laughs> is that is that imagery that coming from the uh, the solar orbiter satellite? Yeah, or? there's some okay. satellites, some, okay, some NASA and ESA satellites. One we use a lot is the Solar Dynamics Observatory from NASA. Um, so they're really, really useful. And there's uh, the GOES as well and, and solar orbiters. So yeah, there's some, some great satellite images out there. Um, all kind of collected on this website and we're we're launching a new version soon as well so it'll look even prettier than it is currently and more accessible. <laughs> Perfect timing as yeah. well if there's more people going to be checking. Is there, for our, and this might be, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a fairly wide range, but for Ireland, is there an index range, you know, in terms of the K index that you mentioned or solar winds that, you know, if you see that you have an indication there's a chance we could see it? Because obviously, as you say, we're a little bit further south, so we don't see it that often. But is there a threshold that you need to yeah, get in order for us to see? Th- there is. Anything, if you're kind of having a look at the site, anything above K5. Um, so if you were seeing a 5 and above, then there's possibly a chance of you seeing it. Now, of course, higher, the better. Um, but if yeah, if you're seeing a 5, you can actually sign up for alerts on the site as well. So once it hits uh, a K5, you'll get a, an email saying it's hit that threshold. And that's maggie.ie. Yeah, Great. maggie.ie. You, you said that, you know, the higher, the better. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about the Aurora, but I'm sure there are other impacts yes. from... The higher, from the better for the Aurora. <laughs> yeah. Is, are, there, are there sort of, uh, are there maybe negative impacts of space weather? Yeah, and I think it's, it's actually, it's a... Uh, really important for us to probably know about this in our technologically advanced society because we're so dependent on technology these days and really the impacts of space weather are to our technology and infrastructures. So, you know, we are, first of all, just to say we are perfectly safe on Earth. You know, we are nicely protected by Earth's atmosphere and Earth's magnetic field. Um, And, you know, 
the harsh rays from the sun are being absorbed in the ionosphere, so we're not going to get any nasty rays or anything like that. Um, but they will disrupt um, a variety of our communications, our infrastructures that we really depend on every day. Um, and uh, that's why we had the different scales, because the different types of eruptions will have different impacts. So take flares, for example. Um, flares will impact generally our communications and our navigations. So anything that's using radio communications, hence why we're looking at things like radio radio telescopes, okay. um, it can disrupt uh, radio communications. So you think about aviation industry, for example, air traffic control, things like that. We'll use those kind of comms all the time. Um, and also our global navigation systems. So, you know, think about your GPS, you know, wow, how many yes. times do we use Google Maps Absolutely. to find where we're going? Um, so the, the communications to those satellites can be disruptive. Um, solar energetic particles um, while we're protected on Earth we have to think about the astronauts mm. that are outside that protection of Earth's magnetic field so the particles from those um, events can um, be hazardous so mm. they got to make sure they're not out on spacewalks for example okay. um, and there's some um, kind of transpolar flights that can have increased levels of radiation so crew have to just be careful when they're traveling on that as well and those particles can uh, damage some of our instrumentation on board like spacecrafts and things like that as well. So they got to make sure when they're designing them, they're perfectly shielded and be aware when these kind of events are happening. Um, and then the ones that are, so the, the ones that are causing the aurora actually, by the way, are the CMEs. So the solar wind and the coronal mass ejections. So that flow of plasma. Um, but the coronal mass ejections are really, uh, when they hit Earth, we're calling them geomagnetic storms. Um, so, it, you know, it's on the sun, the start is magnetism. And on the Earth, the you know, it is magnetic fields again. So us... Uh, Space weather scientists love magnetic fields. <laughs> we don't study magnetic fields. Um, so it will have a, you know, if, if, if it was a really strong storm and you were holding a compass, you might see that compass wow. needle changing a little bit. So there will be an impact to our magnetic field. That means um, anything that's a long conductor. So think really long oil gas pipelines, uh, long electrical cables, you know, maybe not in Ireland, but kind of some other countries have, have uh, power lines that go on for miles and miles course, and miles and yeah, miles across the country. Yeah. And um, so they can have currents induce them and cause uh, problems with their, their equipment. And so that will, um, you know, I'm talking about power lines. So you can get transformer burnouts um, and damage to transformers, which can cause power blackouts. Um, so, you know, the, the CMEs are ones to watch. Um, from an electrical grid point of view, there have been events in the past that have caused power outages around the world because of these events. Okay, so it, it also helps to understand why not only for research purposes and, and knowing when the roar is going to occur, there's a really good motivation for a lot of this monitoring equipment that's been... Yeah, and, and you know, as we become more technologically dependent, I think it's it's really ramped up. There was a particular, you know, for example, that, that power outage was in the 80s. There was a really famous event in Quebec in 1989 that caused the Quebec power grid, which has millions of people in the city, uh, to get knocked out. And that really kind of woke people up to, to, to possible space weather impacts. And they really started kind of considering it from a a civil emergencies kind of government infrastructure point of view um, and you know the 2003 storms I mentioned I know some there was a Japanese satellite that was permanently damaged um, there was a really interesting event a few years ago actually in 2017 I think it was a fascinating one to study um, it was a uh, 2017 hurricane season was quite big. Mm. There was Katia, Jose yes. and yep. Irma, I think, three in a row that hit, um, you know, kind of Mexico, Caribbean area. Um, but also on the Gulf of Mexico, there were two earthquakes at the same time and a space weather event 
all in the same period of time. And there's a really fascinating paper that talks about uh, how Mexico had to deal with that from a civil emergency point of view because radio blackouts were occurring in their emergency oh, communications wow. okay. when they're trying to yeah. deal with the earthquakes and the hurricanes happening at the same time. So really a lot of countries now are considering space weather a natural hazard um, you know, that has to be kind of mitigated from an emergency point of view alongside your hurricanes, your tornadoes, your earthquakes and things like that. Can geomagnetic storms affect things like data centers? You know, can these sort of magnetic pulses and energy pulses, can they damage or affect? Because, you know, say yeah. here in Ireland, we have so many data centers, our, our whole internet lifestyle is based on big data I centers. Know, can right? they be disrupted? From I, I guess in theory, yes. I mean, I, I'd love to get into one of them as uh, data centers and talk to them about what their backups and things of are. Course, you know, I'm sure they have yeah, lots of yeah. backups. But if they're reliant on the power grid and the power grid goes down, you know, we're actually lucky in Ireland, we're further south. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the power grid things, you know, I mentioned there was one big one in Quebec. A lot of them happen in the northern latitudes where they have a stronger impact. But, um, you know, if it does come further south and there is a bigger storm, it can impact our grid here. We've actually worked with, um, you know, AirGrid in the past to model um, the, the Irish power grid and look at it. And we're, we're pretty good, actually, in terms of robustness. We're an island, so there's some conductivity changes near the oceans, you know, kind of the seas, which is is a, a little bit more um, impactful than some. But compared to some other countries, we're, we're not too bad. But it's something that will always definitely um, have to be kind of taken into account. So, yeah, it depends how their data centers. I mean, I guess they would always hope they'd have a backup, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when people hear that you're, say, a meteorologist or that you study climate or something like that, they're always quite interested because it's, it's quite a specific area mm. to be interested in. But space weather is, to me, is almost more exotic. It's even more specific. What what drew you into that area? Was there something that that sparked it off, or is it something you've always been interested yeah, in? Yeah, it, it kind of fell into it in a way. Okay. Um, it, it, I, yeah, I was I was a student and as an undergrad, so I always liked space. I, you know, when I was younger, and I knew I wanted to do an astrophysics degree. Um, but for my final years, so this is the bachelor's undergrad project. Um, I happened to do a space weather project. It was actually, I built a radio antenna and I put it on the roof of the physics building. And we detected, um, we detected lightning strikes and lots of different things. Oh, but we amazing. also de detected flares. Great. And I was thinking at the time, this is the coolest thing ever. But I didn't really think much of it. I went on to do a master's in, in space science and engineering and in London. And I... I, I Coincidentally, I happened to be taught by some really prominent solar physicists who were professors there. And again, I was thinking, oh, this space weather stuff is really interesting. Um, and so then I ended up coming back um, to Trinity and I did a PhD in solar physics and I studied sunspots, actually the magnetic fields of sunspots. And that kind of just took off from my studies. And, I, you know, I, I got more into sort of space weather forecasting when I worked in the UK Met Office. And uh, for me, it's interesting, particularly, I really love the operational forecasting side of it because of the practical aspects of it. I think in science, you kind of go two directions. You, you really like the paper writing and the theoretical kind of stuff to it. But to me, knowing that space weather does have this real world impact and it is really important to improve our predictions on it. I, I just thought it was a really fascinating topic. So yeah, I just happened to have some really good teachers and thought, you know, realised the practical importance of it, I guess. Of course, it makes such um, a difference. But totally fell yeah. into it. If, if, if you're surrounded <laughs> by people who have who are enthusiastic about a topic yeah. and as you say, can show a real sort of practical it's, reason it's, for it's it. It's an interesting time to work in this field as well. Mm. Um, you know, some of my forecasting colleagues would always remind us that we're back in the 80s 
is, you know, compared to weather forecasting. Um, you know, terrestrial weather forecasting had a huge increase in accuracy when they got the age of supercomputers. Absolutely. They had way more weather satellites and they could do some really cool um, modeling and, and forecasting with it. And we're only really getting to that point now with space weather forecasting because for a really long time we were reliant on, on ground-based observations. You know, we now have satellites there. Um, we could obviously do with more, but we have some science um, satellites and some operational satellites that are helping us improve um, our, our understanding of the sun. But because the sun is so far away, it's so much harder to study and, you know, improve. So it's it's really early days in, in space weather forecasting, which I think is really cool as well. You know, it's something, it's great to talk to you about it as well, I think, is because... As I said, it is very much a natural hazard, but I don't think that many people know about it. They might have heard of a solar flare, particularly in a movie or something. And usually in the movie, the you know the atmosphere gets blown off or something. <laughs> yeah. you know, what would happen? <laughs> that would happen. But it's great to be able to tell the public and everybody about this sort of stuff as well. And maybe in ten years, we'll have you know space weather forecasts and weather forecasts side by side or that something would be like fantastic. that. <laughs> how, how far out can you forecast, say, in terms of? Maybe a K index or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, CMEs are the hardest thing to forecast right now in terms of our understanding. So we're we're pretty good at flares. Um, so we study some spots and we model them and we use a lot of maths to predict when a flare might occur from a sunspot because we know they're complex and we can kind of get a sense of that. So right now in a, in a weather forecasting centre, which does space weather, um, you generally see a 24-hour forecast and maybe a couple of days ahead um, because they're really just tracking the sunspots and see if they think they're going to get more complex. So that's the flare. But it's really difficult from a physics point of view and from the observations we have right now to know if that flare will have a CME too. Will it erupt stuff on top of the energy? It's really, really difficult. So right now, we actually don't predict a CME. What we do is we predict at once the CME erupts when it will arrive on Earth. Um, and so we usually do that a few days ahead. So, you know, we're, we're pretty good plus or minus maybe 12 hours or something like that on our errors. So you can usually, t you know, give power grid companies and spacecraft people a couple of days warning if there's a CME coming. And the really fast CMEs, you know, like a really big one um, might be 18 hours or something like that on its travel time. So it's a bit more of a heads up. And I think kind of the early days of space weather forecasting, knowing how quickly a flare arrived, they're like, we're going to focus on that. And now, you know, the, the extra eruptions are, are coming into play as we have more machine learning and observations course, and things like yeah. that. Um, so and it gives us a few years. We'll have a CME prediction, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in weather forecasting, you know, we have sort of like long term and medium term mm. forecasting and short term. And then there's even this now casting, which is like within a couple of hours kind of thing. Is there similar in, in space weather that say maybe you're detecting the front edge of that that CME before it hits Earth? Is yeah. there something similar like that? We have some spacecraft. Um, so there's kind of remote sensing is what we call when we're looking at kind of the sun. Um, but there's also in situ um, instrumentation. So this is at a what is called the Lagrange one point. It's in between the sun and the Earth. And so when it hits um, L1, it gives a heads up. And so it measures the speed of the solar wind, the CME, the density, and the forecasters will have a look and say, okay, it's got to this point. Um, and that's a really good point of them knowing now what is it going to do when it hits Earth. And then there's lots of, you know, I've talked a lot about the, the forecast for the solar side. There's lots of modeling on the Earth side of things of thinking, okay, if it's that speed here, 
what will they do when it hits the Earth's atmosphere or the power grids of things? So there's lots of kind of the now casting on that side of things here at Earth as well. And of course, then we have our, our magnetometers in the ground and, you know, things actually seeing that real world impact when it hits. And a lot of that information is, you know, maybe it's not great useful at the time for the, the users because they're just seeing that. But that's great for the scientists because they can look back and see what kind of impact that particular event have, you know, and then think, OK, well, then we'll have a better idea for next time okay. what it could do. Is there a piece of research that you've been involved in or maybe that you're currently or planning to be involved in that you're particularly excited or proud about? Something that like you really uh, feel was Ooh, like a great a piece good of question. work or, yeah. or something. Or maybe it's a, some sort of outreach event or something that you've really connected with and, and, and have enjoyed being part of. I've done so many random things in my career. It's so hard <laughs> to pinpoint one. Um, when I was, so I work at, at Diastone Sync Observatory now and I support kind of research activities across the whole section. So I'm involved with lots of different projects. Um, but back when I was my own scientist doing my own research, um, you know, I learned so much from working. So I went, I finished my PhD and I worked uh, at the Met Office in the UK for a number of years. And working with the forecasters was really eye-opening, I think, from a science point of view. Um, I learned so much about what they did in weather forecasting and how a lot of what they do in weather forecasting is very, very useful for space weather and for solar physics, but we hadn't been using it yet. And so the kind of techniques that they were uh, doing uh, you know, it was very much an eye-opening experience for me saying, oh, we should be doing that. Um, so, you know, one of the really nice projects I did when I was a researcher in Trinity was taking some of the techniques using weather forecasting and applying it to uh, space weather forecasting. And um, there's something called an ensemble. Um, so some of you might have ever seen uh, hurricane forecasts. Like uh, if you ever see a map of Florida and there's kind of like a cone of where the, the hurricane might go. And that's been... Um, created because they're running loads of different models multiple times and getting this what's called an ensemble of results. We really hadn't done it um, for, for, for flare forecasting before. So I really enjoyed that project um, to try and improve predictions of flares uh, using ensembles based on a weather technique. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's the most proud thing I have really from my, from my days as a researcher just knowing that we can take those things and learning from the weather forecasters for space weather. I think that's so important. I've, I've come across that in my own career as well, where you have intersection between different um, different scientists and different groups. And because there's so much of trying to reinvent the wheel often, but if you can uh, yeah. learn from what someone else has done, like for example, like the work that you're, you're doing in, in space research and solar sciences is very complex and very advanced, but there's always things you can learn from other groups and vice versa. And even say conversations like this are always very useful and, and, and you can spark off questions and ideas that neither of us would have thought of before. Exactly. <laughs> so it's been, it's, um, it's been a chat I've been really looking forward to have and it's been really, really interesting. And uh, I'm sure those listening will have learned a lot about how they can look to, to spot the aurora maybe in Ireland or further north uh, as it may be. But uh, for now, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us and uh, we'll chat again soon, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was lovely to chat to you. That's all for this episode. My thanks again to Dr. Murray for helping us to explore space weather and to understand the aurora a little better. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you did too. As always, if you've any thoughts or questions on today's episode, you can get in touch on Met Aaron's social channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. And if you're not already subscribed, you can do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and I look forward to speaking with you next time. <laughs>